love Jeopardy. Jeopardy's a great, great show. I, I'm, I'm even willing to admit that I've watched episodes of Jeopardy on Netflix. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Did you know that we actually have, as a member of our congregation, a Jeopardy champion? Yes, totally. She's a back-to-back uh, winner. Uh, she's in our singles ministry. Uh, she's recently moved to Connecticut, but she's still technically a member here, I believe. Uh, so, recently moved. It's recent enough. But yeah, she uh, she won and uh, was fantastic. Her name's Deborah, and uh, I was so proud of her. And I always want to go on Jeopardy, you know, and, and answer questions, or I guess answer answers, because they give you answers first, and then you have to say, you know, what is such and such and such and such. Boom, boom. Yeah, Jeopardy's a great show because they ask you questions and you're supposed to know stuff and it's all nicely divided into categories. I still don't know what a potent potable is, but I assume it's something cool. And yeah, Jeopardy's just great. So uh, life, though, can be a little bit like Jeopardy, right? You're expected to have answers to questions all the time, right? You go into job and, and people expect you to have answers. And if you don't have the answers at the right time and they're formulated in the right way, what happens? You lose your job. Or if you get the answers wrong, you lose your job. The nice thing about Jeopardy is if you don't win on Jeopardy, you just get to go home and you say, oh, I was on Jeopardy, which is kind of cool. But if you get enough answers wrong in life, you lose life. You lose at the game of life. And not only do you have to have answers, it's a lot like Jeopardy in that you have to be quick. We often say the first thing that pops into our head, and if that's not a carefully crafted, worded uh, response, especially if it's on social media, you get savaged because it wasn't nuanced enough. We get asked questions all the time. Life is constantly probing, asking you questions. Are you going to be a good parent? How are you going to take care of this? How are you going to make it uh, with a new roommate? How are you going to make it without a job? How are you going to make it through school? How, 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 how? It's difficult. Life is full of questions. We're going to continue on in our study of the word spoken by the word. And what this means is Jesus Christ is the word of God incarnate. And he often in his ministry would quote the Old Testament, the written word of God. And so we're looking at this study and it's kind of unique because in some ways it's a little amorphous because there's lots of different ways that Jesus uses scripture. And today, Jesus uses scripture to show you in kind of a, a riddle sort of way that he is the answer. He's the solution. So we're going to look at three questions that he gets asked today, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to bounce around just a little bit today. But like I said, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. So the passage we're looking at today, Luke 20, uh, starting in verse 39, is actually the result of what happens from the chapter we studied last week. So at the last week, uh, Jesus tells a parable. It's against the religious leaders, and the religious leaders say, hey, we're going to get together. We're going to conspire together, all of our factions are going to get together, we're going to dethrone, we're going to, we're going to take Jesus down, we're tired of this. And so they, they ask him a series of difficult questions, and at the end of this series, he decides, I'm going to ask you a question of my own. And it culminates in verse 39, uh, sorry, 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus asks his own question, and this is a quotation of Psalm 110, which, fun Jeopardy fact, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Little known fact there. 
And this thing functions as a riddle. That's how Jesus is using it. He's using it as a riddle. In Jesus' day, it was a patriarchal society. And it was oriented towards your family and your ancestors. And so if you were going to call somebody Lord, you would always call your ancestors Lord. Your ancestors, if they occupied the same social position that you occupied, they're greater than you are. So an ancestor calling their descendant Lord, implying that they're greater, would not have happened. It would have been very strange, especially in a, civiliz- in a society where, that you occupied the same social strata. It would have been strange. It would have been weird. And so David sa- Jesus says, why, why would David do this? It doesn't make any sense. It's a riddle. What came first? The chicken or the egg kind of thing. And yet David is saying, there's going to come somebody after me who's going to be a king of Israel, but he's going to be greater than me. He's going to have greater influence. He's going to be wiser. He's going to be smarter. He's going to be more successful than I am. And this is an amazing statement by David. Think about it. David is a titan of the Old Testament. We look up to David. There are countless studies about David. People in, not in church know about David. We talk about David and Goliath all the time. And think about all the things that David battled. He was persecuted. He hid in caves. He fought battles. He had rebellion in his house. He had scandal. He survives all this. And in a lot of ways, he thrives in the midst of this. There's going to be somebody greater than David? Really? David's like the undisputed greatest king of Israel. But David receives a revelation. Now, we're not really sure how this revelation comes to him. Either it came directly through the Holy Spirit and he just envisioned it, or more likely, a prophet comes to him and says, Hey, David, uh, King David, Lord, I have something for you from the Lord. And so David does what any good musician does. He puts it to music. He's like, oh, cool, I'll write about it. He's a songwriter. That's what he does. And this song becomes sort of in the consciousness of Israel. It sort of uh, becomes a greatest hit. It's kind of played over and over and over again in their head. And so let's read Psalm 110. And you're going to want you to keep your thumb there. Keep your thumb in 20 and keep your thumb in 110. We're going to flip back and forth. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I'm sorry I didn't sing that to you. We don't have the music. I still wouldn't, even if we did. And after all of this... uh, after, after Jesus makes this statement, after his resurrection, the readers of Luke's gospel and what we believe today is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of this musical prophecy. He's the answer. So if, if Alex Trebek were to say, this is the Messiah, we would respond as believers, who is Jesus Christ, right? That's how that works. For many of you today, you're looking for a Messiah. Now you wouldn't word it that way because that's not part of our language. You wouldn't even say you're looking for a Christ necessarily. But you are looking for someone with answers. And that was the expectation of the Messiah. He was going to have all of the answers. I mean, look again at how Psalm 110 is worded. It's all about the successful king who's going to give them freedom from their enemies. The land is going to be fruitful. It's going to be successful. It's going to be a glorious time. And we want the same thing in our lives. I want somebody who has all the answers. Now, there's certain areas in my life where I've got a pretty good grip on things. 
But there's a lot of things that I don't understand and I don't know. And I'm hoping somebody shows up with some answers. That's who Jesus is. He's the man with the answers, with the plan. He's the Messiah. He's the answer. And so what I want us to do is I want us to go back and look at the three questions that Jesus has asked by the religious elite. And I want us to look at them through the lens of Psalm 110 and see how these same questions that we ask today are actually answered in the same way that Jesus answered them as the Messiah. And so the first question that he gets asked is the Messiah, is Jesus bigger than politics? Is Jesus bigger than our politics? So the cool thing about Jesus' day is that politics were a big deal in his time just like they are in our time. There were political parties on a national level. The Romans had uh, the Popularis and the Optimates. How cool would it be to vote for the Optimates, man? That's a great name. Um, they could have Optimus Prime as their, their kind of mascot. It'd be really cool. But there were also local parties. There were Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, Herodians. And, and these were kind of quasi-religious uh, political groups. And everybody had political thoughts in the day. Everybody was actively engaged in politics. Even people that didn't vote had thoughts on politics, and it's much like our day and age. Even if you didn't vote in the last presidential election, you have thoughts on Donald Trump. And they're probably visceral ones, right? You probably have strong opinions, right? And so the Herodians, uh, this group of scribes, show up and ask Jesus a question. And, and they're playing Jeopardy, and they say, we'll take politics for 400. And so we'll look in verse uh, 21. They walk up to him and they say, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. If your enemies ever come to you and say this, they're trying to trick you. Okay? Just a heads up. 21, 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is one of the hot topics of the day, taxation, which we never talk about or discuss angrily ever. In, in this day and age. But they had a question about taxes. This is called a poll tax. And the religious leaders hated it. And the Jews hated it because it reminded them that they were oppressed by a foreign government. Again, much how you feel on April 15th. You're like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I feel oppressed, right, when I pay this tax. I get it. So they come to Jesus, and it's a trick. Jesus even says in verse 23, he says, but he perceived their craftiness. He knows it's a trick. So if he says yes, you need to pay the tax. It discredits him with all the people that hate, that, that hate the tax. He's just a Roman stooge. But if he says, no, you don't have to pay the tax, then he's an insurrectionist, and the religious leaders can go to Pontius Pilate and be like, hey, this dude's telling people not to pay the tax. You guys got to do something about it. We're loyal Roman citizens. It's a trick. It's a trap. There's no good answer. There's no right answer, which we never do to our politicians today. They always answer correctly, and we never ask them questions that have no right answer, right? Of course we do. Of course we do. So verse 24, Jesus says, Show me a denarius, which is a coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. If that was a, a, a daily double, Jesus would have wagered it all in one, right? That was a great answer, right? You always want the guy to wager it all, too. You're like, ah, just risk it all. He doesn't. They never do. Jesus is saying that the things that bear Caesar's image, give it to him. And he's implicitly saying the things that bear God's image should go to him. Well, what bears God's image? You do, and I do. People. People belong to God. It's a brilliant answer. I mean, I, I've read this passage numerous times, and I'm still stunned 
by how brilliant Jesus' answer is. Because the people of his day were trying to pigeonhole him into a political party, into a political position, to turn him, his ministry, his kingdom, his plan, into a political football. And he wasn't having it. And we do this to Jesus all the time. All the time. We believe that Jesus would vote the way that we vote. We think that Jesus would belong to the political party that we belong to. We think that the Christian party is whichever one we're a part of, right? Nobody would ever be a part of a political party and be like, yeah, it's not really a Christian party, but I just vote this way anyway. You know, nobody would admit that. We try to put a little R or a little D next to Jesus' name or a little I or a little L or G or whatever other letters we can come up with. And what we do is we take purely political issues, like the size of government or like taxation, and we turn them into these deep spiritual issues, right? We use apocalyptic language. We're battling for the soul of America in this vote. Guys, America doesn't have a soul. It's made of people who have souls. But we use spiritual language to raise the stakes on our political debates, to get people invested, right? We talk about not wanting to be on the wrong side of history. We do this all the time. And then we take things that have spiritual implications, real human being issues, things that matter and bear the image of God, and we turn them into, oh, it just matters of policy. Immigration's like this. I don't know what your views are on immigration. But we treat it like, oh, that's just, we just need to think about this rationally and coldly. There are people involved in that. There are legitimate human beings that are trying to better their lives. There's also legitimate human beings who are trying to take advantage of the system. I get it. It's a complicated issue. But that's how things are with things, with objects who bear the image of God. They're complicated. Image bearers are complicated. It's complicated issues. Human beings are complicated. So what do we do? We need to go back and look at Psalm 110. Let's look at two verses in Psalm 110. Let's look at the first one. And we'll look at the fourth one. Because one, Jesus is his own political party. Look at verse one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember, David is saying there's going to come somebody after me who's better than I am at my job. There's, I'm going to have a successor who's better than me. Now, in their day and age, this is a bold statement. In our day and age, we kind of look forward to the fact that our kids will do better than us or be more successful. That's a point of pride. But in their day and age, it was your ancestors were the greatest, right? It was better in the olden days. So for David to say this is a revolutionary statement. He's saying that there's going to come a king who's better than me. Smarter, wiser, more just. And we don't really have David's perspective. We think that the United States is just the best thing ever and will continue to be the best thing ever until Jesus returns. I like our country, I do. But there will come a day when the national anthem will be played for the last time. There will come a day when the stars and stripes will be hauled down from the last flagpole for the last time. There will come a day when the last U.S. president leaves the White House for the last time. And I know that makes some of you uncomfortable. Some of you might even be mad that I'm saying that. But the United States government, as great as it is to have a republic is a placeholder for a greater monarchy that is to come, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that the United States endures until Jesus Christ comes. It's also possible that history progresses, and we don't endure that long. And if that scares you, if that worries you, okay. 
But remember that Jesus Christ is our hope. It's not a political system. And if Jesus is our Messiah, if he's our Lord, then our government, and what it does and how it works, isn't our primary concern. Because we have a greater king, a greater ruler, a Messiah who has all the answers. Nobody in government today has all the answers. And if you think that, if you believe that, if you agree implicitly with anybody who has a certain letter next to their name, then your hope and your faith is in political uh, parties and systems. And that's something we need to repent of. We let Christ rule and reign in our hearts until he returns and makes his kingdom physical on earth. We've got to quit trying to put Jesus in a political category. If his contemporaries couldn't categorize him, knowing him personally, like knowing him and being around him, why do we think we can categorize him from 2,000 years? It's arrogant. So until then, we need to care for the poor. We need to watch over the poor. We need to love them. We need to vote our conscience, absolutely. And we need to love and respect the people who are also voting their conscience. We need to love our enemies, especially our political ones. Right? We also need to know that Jesus' politics are priestly politics. Look at 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The king, the Messiah, isn't supposed to just be a king. He's supposed to be a priest. Which priests do two things. They show people how to worship. And they go and get people that aren't worshiping and incorporate them into the fold. If Jesus is our Messiah, if he's our king, if we're a part of his party, then we need to adopt his platform, which means you go and get people who aren't worshiping and you help them worship. You help them follow the king. It's why we're doing this campaign, the Who's Your One initiative. We want you on Easter Sunday to bring one person with you that doesn't normally go to church. Somebody that you've been praying for over a month. Somebody that you know, maybe doesn't know the Lord, or maybe has wandered from the Lord, or somebody who's looking for a church home. Pretty much everybody goes to church on Easter. Even people that, that don't believe. Because it's what you do. Bring someone with you. Pray for them. Adopt Jesus' political platform. Be a priest. Bring people with you. We need to go out and get people, no matter what aisle, side of the aisle they're on, because Jesus' tent is big enough for us because he's bigger than our politics. So now that you're all mad at me and you're trying to figure out what political party I subscribe to, let's transition to a little bit more private question that you might have. Is Jesus greater than our plans? Is Jesus greater than our plans? So the second question that Jesus gets is from the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, if you're wondering, are just the worst. They're the worst. They're the worst for a lot of reasons. They are they controlled the temple. They were landed aristocrats, so they were wealthy. That's not why they were the worst. It's what they do with it that makes them the worst. Look at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So they didn't just deny that there wasn't a resurrection. They were 100% politically motivated. They accepted no threats to their power. They only believed that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative, counted, and they didn't believe in rewards, punishment, only free will. It didn't matter what you did. God doesn't care because God's not involved in everyday life. And they didn't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection. And this is what drives their question to Jesus. They decide to take theology uh, for 800. And in verse 28 it says, And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. It's a happy ending. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now what they're asking about is this thing called leveret marriage. So if you have a brother and he's married and he dies without children, it's your responsibility to marry her and then provide children for his line. They carry on his name. They inherit his property. They're his kids for all intents and purposes except for biologically. And so it's supposed to be a responsibility. Well, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they're saying at the resurrection, when everybody's resurrected, who's she going to be married to for the rest of eternity? And they're trying to show how dumb resurrection is. And Jesus really isn't having it because Jesus is smarter than they are. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all who live to all who live to him. So Jesus is brilliant here. He does several things that are just really, really smart. One, he tells them what the future is going to be like, and two, he references a part of scripture that they would have taken as authoritative. He doesn't go to the prophets, he doesn't go to the Psalms, he goes to Exodus. He's like, you guys buy into this? Well, hey, you, buy, you, want, you want to follow Moses? Great. Here you go. Now, what's cool about Jesus' answer is you can be like, oh, well, he knows the future. Of course he knows what heaven's going to be like. Yes, that's correct. But he does more than knowing the future. You know what Jesus does with the future? He's making it. He's shaping it. He's the architect of the future. He's the designer of it. He doesn't just know what's going to happen like reading a book. He is making it. He's crafting it. He's shaping it. He's bringing about a future for us. We're all worried about the future. I am. I wake up in the middle of the night worried about the future. We want to know what's going to happen, right? Everybody knew it. want to know what's, what's going to happen. Will I get married? Will I get a divorce? Will I get a job? Will I lose my job? Will my kids ever grow up to be responsible adults? Am I ever going to grow up and be a responsible adult? Probably not. Indeed. Now, we don't just want to know how it's going to happen. We want to know when is it going to happen. When is it going to happen? Why don't I have it now? Now, now, we're an instant gratification society. When will I finally be able to retire? When will I finally be able to graduate? When will I finally get married? When am I going to die? And then we want to know how is it going to happen. How is it going to happen? How am I going to die? Is it going to be slow? Is it going to be painful? Is it going to be quick? How's it going to happen? How am I going to provide? How am I going to find a job? How am I going to survive without this person in my life? How am I going to do it? The future is a scary place. You know why it's scary? Because we can't control it, and it's always coming. It's always on the way. Future's now. Now it's now. Now it's now. It's always coming. And so what we do to try and mitigate it, what we do to try and control it, is we only focus on the things that control, that we can control, that we can manage, that we can craft. So we focus on money, we focus on our work, we focus on on family, we focus on things that that might be good, might be bad, but we focus on physical things that we can control, just like the Sadducees did. They focused on politics in the temple, because they could control those things. And anything they couldn't control or understand, they threw it out. 
So we do the same. We throw out God's grace. We throw out God's mercy. We throw out faith. We throw out the work of the Holy Spirit. We throw out miracles. We throw out all of it because we can't control it. I've got to do what I've got to do for me and mine. We're worried about the future. And Jesus has answers. That's the thing about the Messiah. He's the one to come. He's not just the one who was. He's not just the one who is. All of these is those things. He's the one to come. Look back at Psalm 110. Look at how much of in the future tense this is written. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Verse 5, he will shatter kings. Verse 6, he will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will drink from the brook by the way. He will, he will, he will. It's all future tense. And it's all incredibly certain. It's going to happen. It's going to take place. And then look at what the Messiah does for those that follow him in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. What I like about that passage is the idea of dew of the morning is, you know how dew just kind of appears? We don't really see it falling, it just happens, right? That's the image of the Messiah's followers. And if I'm, if I'm honest, it sounds like a resurrection. Like, boom, all of a sudden, the Messiah's there, and then, boom, everybody that resurrected with him too. Just appearing. Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? You get to share in his victory. You get to share in his victory. You get to be there in the moment, right? Like I said, Revelation 1-4 describes him as he who was, he who is, and he who is to come. A lot of us believe in Jesus for our past. We're like, yeah, I've made some mistakes. I screwed up. I got some shame in my life, but I trust Jesus with it. And we trust Jesus for our present. I was like, oh, Lord, just help me get through this day. But when it comes to our future, long-term and eternal, we don't really think about it. We try and control it ourselves. Some of you today have never trusted Jesus Christ for your eternal future. And I don't mean to scare you, and I don't really like saying this, because I don't do it very often. But what happens when you die? Like, what happens? I, for one like the fact that I'm believing and trusting in Jesus Christ as someone who's died already. He knows what it's like, and he came back from it to rescue me and to rescue you. The reason why Jesus died is so that you don't have to die eternally, but so that you can live. And all you have to do is put your trust in him. All you have to do is say, I want the work of Christ to count for me. I want it to count for me. I want it to count for me. And trust that what he did. Trust that you don't have to have the right answers. Trust that you don't have to do it on your own. Trust that you don't have to buzz in at just the right moment with just the right answer and get God to like you. If you are in Christ, God likes you. He loves you because He loves His Son and you are in Christ. But some of us believers aren't even trusting Jesus for our temporal future. Which is a terrible practice if you're trusting Him for your eternal future. Why not trust Him for your temporal one? You know what's cool about trusting Jesus with your future? His future is your future. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in Christ. That's how Paul describes it. Paul describes being a follower of Jesus with two words all the time. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It means that his future is our future. Our future is his future. So that's why he cares about your future. It's not just because he loves you. It's because what he has for you is what he has for himself. And so he's daily shaping us, moving us, growing us more and more into the image of himself through the power of the Holy Spirit so that he can present us on the day of the resurrection to his Father and says, look, I've made all things new. 
and then his enemies are put under his feet. He's the Messiah. He's the one with the answers. And whatever brokenness, whatever messed up stuff we have in our life, whether we're believers or not, Jesus is the answer. He's the Messiah. He's the right answer. The final Jeopardy question in your life is, what are you depending on for your hope and your salvation? And the answer is, who is Jesus Christ? And then you work that answer out into every part of your life. Your job, your marriage, your home, your family, your singleness, your, your unsingleness, whatever it is that you have, Jesus is the answer. And so we trust Him with our plans. We trust Him with our future. And because of that, we trust Him with our priorities. Jesus is the answer to our priorities. Now I'm going to take a liberty here. I'm going to change to Mark chapter 12. And there's a reason why we're going to go to Mark chapter 12. You can go there. You don't have to go back to Luke 20. Mark chapter 12 has a third question that Jesus gets asked. Matthew has it too. Luke moves it to chapter 10. And it's either a separate incident or he moved it because Luke is telling, uh, wants to emphasize different points. But there's three questions that are asked of Jesus. And it's in verse 28 of chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up to him and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now this is something that was regularly asked in Jesus' day. They want to know what's the greatest commandment. There's 613 some odd commandments. What's the most important one? And Jesus answered in verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said this. And then skip down to verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, basically that he agreed with him, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, nobody dared to answer him, ask him any more questions. Jesus quotes two passages here. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 through and Leviticus 19, 18. What he does is really amazing. He combines these two passages into one. He says these are the same commandment. You want to love God, you love other people. You want to love other people, you love God. These are one commandment. There's one priority. Anybody ever seen City Slickers? Life's about this. And then Billy Crystal says with your finger. It's an older movie. Sorry. In the 90s of all things. But it's funny because Jack Palance is like, no, life is about one thing. Making life about one thing. Boiling down. There's no such thing as priorities. You have a priority. And Jesus is saying, it's me. The Messiah says, it's me. Go back to uh, 110. 110. Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus, right after he answers this question, he poses his own. He poses his own riddle. The rule and reign of the Messiah is about honoring God and about loving other people, about caring about humanity, doing what's best for humanity. It's why he says what he says in the first part of chapter of verse 2. It's God who receives the glory from Jesus' rule and reign, from, his, from him being the Messiah. But look at the second part of the verse. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst. Jesus is not some far off Messiah. Jesus is not somebody who's distant from us. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. And what this implies is that he's either A, subjugated his enemies, people who are obstinate in their rebellion and refuse to repent. He will bring them to the point where they will confess that he is Lord. But then there's those of us who have believed and trusted. We've switched sides. We're no longer enemies. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're co-rulers with Christ. 
And so we were, he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling in the midst of his former enemies. He's surrounded and he's brought peace and order and hope to those of us who were in rebellion, that were doing things harmful to ourselves. There's no opposition to Jesus Christ. I know in our country we value freedom and liberty. That's great. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, there's no, there's no going against Him. Jesus doesn't want the leftovers of your best, and He doesn't want the best of your leftovers. He wants you. He wants all of you. And that's what sanctification is. That's what's growing into the image of Christ is. It is moving closer and closer and closer to being like Christ, to being shaped. And it's a progressive thing. It takes time. It takes work. I came across, across this quote when I was writing this sermon. If it's not making me money, making me happy, or making me better, I don't have time for it. Now, some of you might think, wow, that's really forward. Let's be honest. A lot of us, this is our greatest commandment. This is what we do. We look for things that are going to make us money so that we can be happy. And until then, we're going to look for little distractions, little things that give us happiness as we go. And we're going to look for things that are better because a lot of us, our biggest idol isn't ourselves. It's a future self that we have envisioned. Where we are in five years or ten years, that's what we're working towards and that's what we idolize. What happens when you start missing that? What happens when you don't get the things that you want? What happens when that doesn't come about? What happens when the plan goes off the rails? We lose hope. If that's what your hope is, we lose hope. But then there's Christ. If your hope is to become the person that Jesus Christ has desired you to be, that future is secure because it's not on you to make that happen. It's on the Holy Spirit working in your life. The Messiah has the answers. We have questions. We've covered three questions today. I didn't even scrape the top of the iceberg of the iceberg. You know, lots of questions. And, and maybe those questions that you have are, are questions that maybe we can answer over the next steps room later on. Love to talk to you about those questions and how Jesus might be the Messiah, might be the hope for you. If you want to know how to get baptized, something like that, that can be an answer for you. Maybe that's what you need today. Maybe you need to join the church, right? There is hope for you because Jesus is the one. He's the answer. He's the one who has our future secure. So give him your plans, give him your priorities, definitely give him your politics, because he is the answer. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us somebody who has the answers, because Lord, we don't. Even, even the most arrogant of us in here would say, there's some things we don't know. And so God, we come before you and we ask that you would, one, give us peace and calm in the midst of life's challenging questions. And that we would take time, not to respond with the first thing that comes to our mind, not to, not to reply uh, shooting from the hip, but to, to sit and to think and to rest in the fact that our King has us and has us secure. So Lord, I pray that we would give you our politics. Our, our, our country needs that. Pray that you would watch over our politics, our government. Pray that you would take our plans and use them and shape them and mold them so we might become more like you and that that would be our priority. That would be our hope. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Thank you for taking time to watch this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or following Jesus, please go to our website, pcbc.org, or contact our church offices. We hope to see you next week at church.